Welcome everyone, let's begin. So we started last week with the Gemara in Masechet Gitin. The first part, what we saw last week, which is sort of the introduction, uh, the context for this uh, Agadah, which appears elsewhere as well, but we have it here in the Talmud Bavli. It's the largest piece of Agadah in the Bavli that deals with Shlomo, with King Solomon. And what we saw last week was, what introduced all this was a discussion of the court of Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman was the exilarch, the Reish Galuta in Babel. He was the major Talmudic scholar, but he also was a powerful political person and he has his court. And last week and previously, it talks about Rav Sheshet, another great scholar, who uh, was, uh, was mistreated by the members of, of the court of, of Rav Nachman. They tried to harm him, they tried to trip him up. He was blind, they tried to uh, give him food that was uh, forbidden to eat, etc. And that's the description we discussed this last week. And that's the description of the, the court of Rav Nachman, famous Rav Nachman. And now the Gemara uh, continues in the middle of this page, Randaf Samachet uh, Omedal of 68a, with a verse from Kohelet. That's how we begin. We begin. The, the verse is in chapter 2, verse number 8, Asitili Sharim Visharot, the Tanugot Beneha Adam Shida Vishidot. So this is a verse in Kohelet, second chapter. And the translation here is I got myself and the verse is difficult. Sharim Bisharot. Sharim and Sharot sounds like male and female singers. The Gemara interprets, no, Elomine Zemer. These are uh, types of musical instruments. Tanugot B'nei Adam. That's a, continuing the verse. Pleasures of the human being. Elo Brechotu Mechzot. So these are bathhouses, pools and bathhouses. The king in Kohelet is ascribed to Shlomo. Well, the name Shlomo never appears, but he's called Kohelet ben David. And the assumption of the Bavli and the Agadot is that Kohelet is another name for Shlomo. If we have time next week, maybe I'll talk about where that's coming from. In any event, uh, and the last half of the verse is Shida Vishidot. Very enigmatic phrase, what in the world do Ashida Vishidot? So the translation is, and it's a question of what it means. So in it says in the West, that refers to the land of Israel. Shida Vishidot, they translate as carriages. I made for myself carriages and pools and bathhouses. But here in Babel, they translate shidav shidot from the word shade or shedim, which means demons. The word shedim actually is demons, only appears in two places in the entire Bible. And one of them is in the Torah, uh, in the song of Hazinu, the end of the Torah. Uh, God complains that they sacrifice to shedim, non-gods, so a shade, here they translate shade and shadim in the Talmud, 
it typically refers to some kind of a demon. So it says the king, who is Shlomo talking, as the Agada understands it, I made for myself when I was king, I had singers, I had a choir, I had uh, uh, pools and bathhouses, and they also had demons. Fine. And now the Gemara will, will get into this question about Shlomo's demons. So we'll read through the Gemara. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Shlosh Meyot Mine Shedim Hayu Bishichin, Veshida Atzma Eniyodeya Mai. Okay, Rabbi Yochanan says there were 300 kinds of demons. I don't know the form of the, what the, of the demon itself. Fine. Amamar. So the Gemara says, King Solomon said I had male and female demons. The Gemara says, why does Shlomo need male and female demons? Where he got the demons from, the Gemara doesn't ask. But the Gemara says, of what use are demons? Why in the court of Shlomo does he have demons? So now the Gemara gives its answer. So let's see what the Gemara says, why King Solomon has demons in his court. It is written in the book of Murachim, First Kings, which describes the temple, the Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo builds. It says, that's a, ver that's a citation from the book of Kings. And here they translate, the house when it was being built was built of stone made ready at the quarry. So now it says, Shlomo said to the Rabbanon, because the Agada has Shlomo consulting with the, with the scholars of his time, the, the rabbis of his time, the Rabbanon, what should I do? How can I build the temple? So what is Shlomo's question? Shlomo's question is, how can I, how can I build a temple? Temple is made primarily of stones. There's also various metals. How can I cut the stones without using uh, iron? So Shlomo thinks that it's forbidden to use iron when building the temple. That's the assumption of, of King Solomon. Now the truth of the matter is that there doesn't appear to be a source for this thinking. What we do have in the Torah, in chapter 20 of uh, the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, chapter 20, right after the Ten Commandments, when God says, Moshe says, in Mizbach Avanim Taseli, at the end of chapter 20, when it talks about built, making the altar upon which the sacrifices are to be brought. So the Torah says, the command is don't, don't make them hewn. Because you have, you have used your sword and you would thereby defile the altar. So the Torah, confines the impermissibility of using iron in building the temple or pieces of the temple. The plain reading of the Torah is, this is limited to the altar upon which the sacrifices are brought. The Torah doesn't tell us what, what other implements we should use. 
but it says you shouldn't use iron implements in building the, the Mizbeach. The Gemara though, so the Gemara is wondering whether they're really wondering, I don't know, but they presented to us as they're wondering, so how do you cut the stones? And Shlomo apparently did not confine this rule just to the altar. King Solomon apparently thinks or, or proposes that no metal implements should be used at all in the entire temple, the whole temple. And um, it's not actually clear when you read, even reading this, whether it means that no metal implements should be brought on the temple site or that no metal implements should be brought at all. But the assumption of the Gemara is that he's not going to use any iron in building the whole Beit HaMikdash. So we asked the rabbis, what should I do? And they say to him, Ika Shamira. There's something called the Shamir. The Shamir is a creature, some kind of a worm. It's a worm which has the ability to cut through, to cut through stone. So somehow this Shamir is let's call it a mag the magical worm. And if you have the Shamir, because this is that what that's what Moses did when he used to cut the stones of the ephod. It says no such thing in the Torah at all. The Torah never raises the problem in terms of the ephod. It only raises the problem in terms of the altar. But in this Agada, they say to Shlomo, well, just get the Shamir and you'll solve your problem. So now let's continue. So Amaru Hecha Ishtakach. So they say to him, to Shlomo says, okay, happy to do it. Where can I find this Shamir? Where is the, where's the Shamir? So they, they say the following. They say, Aiti Shida Vishiditin. They say, bring a couple of demons together, a male and a female demon, which Shlomo does. Kavshinu could mean imprison them. Here they translate torture them, torment them together. Maybe they know, and due to the suffering, they will inform you as to where you can find this shamir to, uh, with which you can cut the stones to build the temple. Amri, so he does this. He brings these demons, Shida Vishida, right? Shida Vishida, that's why he has the demons. But they say, they say to him, listen, you can torture us all you want. We have no idea, but we don't know. Perhaps Ashmodai, who's the king of the demons, Ashmodai is the Malka, he's the king. Maybe the king of the demons knows how you can procure the, the, uh, the Shamir. So before we continue any further, let me just make what I think is an obvious point. And that is that uh, on the, the plain reading of the Torah suggests that we don't uh, forget about the Shamir not existing altogether, believe that out. But the plain reading of the Chumash is that you don't need any magical implements to build the temple. It's only the altar, which, which no, no, as the Torah says, your sword, you should not put upon it. The idea being presumably that the sword represents violence. We know that King David said about himself, I couldn't build the temple, I'm a man of war. So the Torah doesn't say what you do, but in this case, on one end, Shlomo is very, uh, He's very machmir on himself. 
he insists that no, no meadow should be used. And now the question is, how do you build the temple? So the larger question I think that this Agada is raising is a question of means and ends. The goal is to build God's temple, Beit HaMikdash, which is Shlomo's mission, task, which he does. But the Agada is raising the question, how do you do it? How do you make this happen? Given the fact that Shlomo has taken upon himself this seemingly impossible task of building this big, big building without any metal. So the answer is, well, we have to get this magical worm, the Shamir, how are you gonna get it? And the first thing he does is to bring in two demons and to torment them. So the first question, I think in the least in the back of our minds, we can ask ourselves the question, is this the way that you want to uh, build a temple? By starting off by torturing to, to okay, they're demons, whatever. We'll get to the demons in a minute. They don't know the answer, but the king of the demons knows. So the, the main character in the story, there are two main characters in the story. One is obviously Shlomo, which is our interest. He's the king of Israel, right? Or as in Kohelet, Kohelet ben David Melech Yerushalayim. And then we have his counterpart, who's also a king. He's the king of the demons. So let's bear this in mind in our story of supposedly about Ashmodai, because our real interest here is, is Shlomo. So we don't know the answer, say the, say the she dove and she don't. Notice, by the way, that the first verse that's cited in this Agada is from Kohelet. Of course, it's talking about Shlomo. It's ascribed to Shlomo. Kohelet is Shlomo from the Agadic perspective. So we have to find Ashmodai because he knows how to find the Shamir. He doesn't have it himself, but he knows how to get it. So Armaluhu Hecha Ike. So Shlomo says, Where is uh, where is he? Amrile, Ita Betura Palan, Karyule Bira Omayule Maya, Umechasya Betinra, the Khatme Begushpanka, the Choyoma Salik Rakia, the Gama Metifta de Rakia, the Nachlit Liara. So they tell the foul, this is the chief demon, the king of the demons. Here's what he does. Here's how he divides his time. So half of the time, he learns in the base Medrash al He goes up to heaven, and in heaven there is a Beit Midrash. Uh, I don't know whether HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, is, is is the Rosh Hashiva there? But there's, it's, it's God's, God is a Beit Midrash. So that's where he spends half his time running, up, running, in, running in heaven. Then he comes down to earth, and the remainder of the time that the demon spends is in the Beit Midrash al-Mata. There's a Beit Midrash al-Mala and a Beit Midrash al-Mata. This is where this demon spends all his time. His entire time is spent in the study, I presume, the study of Torah, to Beit Midrash, half the time in the heavenly, realm, half the time on the earth, in the earthly realm. Beit Midrash al-Mala and Beit Midrash al-Mata, when you hear those expressions of the Beit Midrash al-Mala and the Beit Midrash al-Mata, it reminds us, I think, of a very similar expression, Beit Midrash al-Mala and Beit Midrash al-Mata, or Yerushalayim shal-Mala, Yerushalayim shal-Mata. This is what the demon does. He spends half the time, he comes back, and he has a pit which he dug for himself, and he, and he covers it with a rock 
and he seals it with his seal. So Ashmodai has a seal. Now we know of seals in the Bible and generally speaking, uh, the first, who's the first person in the Bible about whom we are told has a seal? Who is that first person who has a seal? Paro's ring. Paro's ring is- Yehuda, a, Yehuda. Yehuda is correct, Yehuda. So Judah has a seal and Judah, of course, he's the progenitor of, uh, of, uh, of all the kings. He's the progenitor of King David, of King Shlomo. He has a seal. A seal is a kingly. Achashverosh has a seal, right? Right? And Shlomo, as we will see, also has a seal. And interesting, by the way, in that Shlomo, and interest in Shlomo is not limited to the uh, Jewish people. The Christians have an interest and, and the Muslims have a deep interest in Shlomo. And Solomon's seal was a big deal. But here, the Ashmodai, the king of the demons has a seal. And he, every day he, he goes to heaven, studies, goes, comes back down and he has a pit. He digs a pit for himself, so he fills with water and he enters into the pit and he closes it all up. He, he, he comes down, he checks his seal. No one has entered his pit. He drinks the water and, he, uh, and, and then he leaves. That's, that's, that's the daily routine of this, of this, of this uh, you know, one might say that, as it says in Pirkei Avot, in terms of Talmud Torah, pat tochai you know, you wanna be a real scholar, you study all the time and you have bread and water. With Ashmodai, apparently he limits himself to water. I don't see any bread here. So this is an uncommon dedicated scholar, half the time in heaven, half the time on earth. Okay, let's continue now with the little story. So, okay. Now Shlomo, Shadre Livna Yo Ben Yehoyada. So now we have to get Ashmodai. How do you get the king of the demons to come to your court? He has his own business. He's busy, you know, in the various Batei Midrash, the heavenly and the earthly Beit Midrash. So Shlomo sends Benayahu ben Yehoyada. Who is Benayahu ben Yehoyada? So Benayahu ben Yehoyada is one of David's Gibovim, but he's also the person that appears in the first two chapters of, of the book of Kings. He's the person that Shlomo sends out. Before King David died, he had instructed Shlomo that there are a couple of dangerous people out there. One is Yoav, David's general, and the other was Shimi ben Gera, whom David had sworn not to harm, an important person from the tribe of Binyamin. And Shlomo has to get rid of these two people. And you're a smart guy, you'll figure out how to do it, as we have mentioned earlier. So the, the, uh, the hitman that Shlomo sends out is none other than Benayo ben Yehoyada. So he is Shlomo's hitman. He goes out, he kills Yoav, and he also kills Shimi. He's the one, he does the killing. Uh, I believe he may also have killed uh, Adonia. I have to check that. I think he also kills his brother, the first one that, in short, ben Yehoyada appears. He's the one that makes Solomon the king by eliminating the adversaries. So he's, this is the guy, ben Yehoyada is the one that Shlomo will send out to bring Ashmodai back to capture him. He doesn't want to kill him because he needs the information about the Shamir in order to build God's temple. 
So we sense Bnei Bnei Yad, and now we have a a a, 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 a description here about how Bnei Bnei Yad will uh, will capture Ashmodai. So what he does is he he has a chain that he wears. He wears a chain, and the chain has the name of God on it. A chain, and he takes wool and, and wineskins of water. I'm reading the English at this point. So it says, he went and dug a pit lower down the mountain, below the pit dug by Ashmodai, and he drains out the water of Ashmodai's pit, which is filled with water. And he plugs it up, pit is empty. Then he digs another pit, pit above Ashmodai's pit, and he pours wine into it. So Ashmodai's pit does not have water anymore in it, it has wine. Then he climbs up and sits in a tree. So this is it. Now Ashmodai's pit, unbeknownst to the demon, is filled with wine and not water. Now the next parakiyata, when now Ashmodai comes back, he's completed half the day of his learning up in heaven, in the Beit Midrash. He comes back, he checks the seal, and he comes into the pit, and it's filled with wine. And he says, Ashmodai says, Amar Ketiv, let's Hayayin Homar Shechar, Bechosho Gebo Lo Yechkam. He quotes the verse. He says, Harley wine, harlotry wine and new wine take away the heart. That's the verse he quotes. Where is the verse from? Of course, the verse is from Mishwe. That's the second book that Shobo wrote. I'm not, I'm not touching the wine. By the way, um, we remember the long discussion that we had and the, the uh, Agada about wine, about Shlomo drinking wine. He drank so much wine that he couldn't open up the temple and the keys were under his head. So now Ashmodai says, I'm not going to drink the wine because it's a pasuk in, in, in Mishrei. How can we, don't make a mistake and drink the wine. The, the wise person of Mishrei has told me not to drink wine. Who was the wise person of Mishra? Of course, Shlomo. He said, I'm not drinking the wine. Eventually, he becomes thirsty. Right? Kitsachi or Sagule, he became thirsty. He couldn't, couldn't, couldn't resist. He drinks the wine, the Ghana, and he falls asleep. Okay, so now we have, we're gonna get this guy to come, and the way we're gonna get him to come is to get make him intoxicated. Notice, that there's something interesting over here, that from one perspective, he knows he shouldn't do it. He has the wisdom of the book of Mishra, you don't do it, but he can't resist it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He can't, he can't, he can't resist, and he falls asleep. Once he falls asleep, Benayahu comes, and he throws the chain around him. The chain has God's name. When Ashmodai wakes up, ki ita, when he wakes up, he struggles to remove the chain. And Benayo says to him, right? Shema Damalka, Shema Damarach Allah. Your master's name is upon you. That's God's name. So you can't tear the chain. Forbidden to do that. So Ashmodai stops. He respects this. It's his Rebbe, he's a student in Beit Midrash Omar. He's not going to do that. So what happens is that. Benayo takes Ashmodai and brings him to, uh, to Yerushalayim. He's going to bring him to Shlomo because Shlomo's interest is finding out where the Shamir is 
in order that he uh, can build God's temple. This is the point of the story. So, so far he has uh, tortured two demons. Uh, he's made Ashmodai uh, drunk. Uh, he's using God's name to subdue him. And now he comes to Yerushalayim and there's a little story over here, which we can't get into now. Every place he goes, he's knocking things down until finally he comes to the house of a certain widow. And the widow comes out. The widow begs him not to knock down the house. So Ashmodai bends away from her. And when he bends away from her, he breaks one of his bones. And he said, Roshon Raka Tishaver Garem. Soft speech can break a bone. Another verse from Mishle, of course. Another verse from Mishle. Fine. And now we have four stories about Ashmodai, what he sees on the way to Shlomo. I will skip that for now. If we have time, we'll come back to this because they're very interesting. Four stories, fine. Please, let's skip that part. Let's stop here. When Ashmodai, back it up a little. When Ash, Ashmodai arrives in Yerushalayim, Bashlomo makes him wait for three days. Okay, fine. Now let's, let's, let's get to the following day. The following day, well, we can keep, scroll down some more. So the king doesn't see him right away. At the end of three days, let's start from there. At the end of three days, right? So Ashwadai comes before Shlomo after three days. So it says, Ashmodai takes a reed, he measures four cubits. He throws it on the ground. He says to Shlomo, Shlomo, when you die, you will have nothing in this world except these four cubits. Now you have conquered the entire world. You are not satisfied till you conquer me. He says, what do you need to conquer me for? You have the whole world before you. You're king of the world. Amale, Shlomo says to him, Lobe'ina minach. I don't need you for anything. I'm not interested in you. However, I want to build a temple. In order to build the temple, I need this shamir, this worm that can cut through stone. So Ashmadai says to him the following. I don't have the shamir. I don't control the shamir. I don't have it. However, it was given to somebody else. It is given, he says, was Sarah Diyama. It's given to the to the to the minister of the sea, one, one of God's angels, the minister of the sea. And the minister of the sea actually guards it very carefully, but he gives it, he gives this, he only gives it with Tarnagola Bra to the wild rooster, the Mehemenue Ashwate whom he trusts to guard the Shamir because the rooster has sworn to protect it. The rooster has taken an oath to protect it. Fine. So and now the question is, what does the rooster do with the Shamir? Why does the rooster need the Shamir? Again, I just want to just to pause for a moment to make the point that we have this, I would say, incredibly fanciful story and I think when you read this kind of a story, you ask yourselves two questions. I do anyway, maybe there are more questions. One is, what is the point of all this? And number two, which I think is a very important point, how does the story relate to what we know about Shlomo 
from the uh, from the from the from the biblical narrative from from the Tanakh. So those are the two things that that interest uh, interest us this evening. So what does the booster do with this with this Shamir? So what he does is Mamti Leiturei to let be Yishuv umanachla ashino de Tura umpaka Tura umankit mighty bizani meilni bishadi atam vavi Yishuv behind the metagamin and nagar Tura. So what does this this wild rooster do? Sometimes I see translates as a hoopoe. I don't know one bird from the next. But what he does is he brings it to a mountain that is not fit for habitation. Nobody lives there. He places the Shamir on a very craggy rock. He splits the mountains. He brings seeds of trees. He throws them there. It becomes fit for habitation. That's why the word duchifat in the Torah, which they're translating here as wild rooster, duchifat is a cutter of mountains, nagar tura which is the Aramaic translation of Duchifat. So the Shamir is being used essentially for, in order to make the world habitable for people. That's what this wild booster does. Places that are not fit for human habitation, he's able to split the rocks in order to allow people, human beings, to live in places which form, in which formerly they could not live. That's what he does. Okay, let's read a little bit more and I'll pause for comments or questions. Fine, fine. So now they're going to investigate. They still can't find the Shamir. So, so Badku, they investigate and they find Tarnagola Bra. They found the nest. They find the nest of this rooster. And they covered it with glass, right? They covered the, 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 the nest with glass. So the rooster has chicks. And, but the nest of the chicks is now covered with glass. So when the rooster came, Kiata by Lameo, the rooster wants to unite with the rooster's children, with the chicks. But it can't do this because it's covered with glass. So it's, it's separated from its children. So then it went, the rooster goes out and gets the Shamir because it has access to the Shamir and places the shamir on top of the on top of the glass to crack the glass, right? When he does this, as soon as he did this, um, the um, let's see how he translates through a clump of dirt at the rooster. The rooster and knocked up rooster knocked the rooster knocked over the shamir, and the man took it. So the, they take the Shamir from the rooster who's trying to get to his children. Um, and the wild rooster went, right? The rooster goes and strangles itself over the fact that it had not kept its oath by not returning the Shamir. Fine. Now, so Shlomo now is in possession of the Shamir. If we think about how he got the Shamir, let's just think about the story. You know, we could have invented, I would say, a much nicer story. But if you think about the story over here, the steps to get the Shamir, and in particular, this last business strikes me as very interesting. So I'll say one thing about this, and then I'll stop and we'll take comments and questions about the story. It's, 
first of all, the there are two things here which I think are give us pause. The first is that the way they get the Shamir is by separating the is by is by causing this rooster to be fearful about the rooster's children and the rooster's chicks and afraid it would never be able to get back at them. And it's, you know, it's interesting that the Torah has a whole mitzvah called Shiluach HaKan, basically. You're passing by, so whatever we think of this, right? The Mishnah talks about you shouldn't think it's God's mercies. You shouldn't say in your prayers it's God's mercies. But the fact of the matter is, when you read the Chumash, you should, right? If the Chazan says, I'll kansi pari uh, you, God, have been so careful not to take into account the feelings of the, of the, in the situation of the, of the chicks in the nest. So over here, they're, they're causing the rooster to be separated from the chicks. That's number one. And then you have the situation that the rooster strangles itself. Why? because it has failed to keep the oath. So what you've done in effect is you have caused the rooster to violate the oath. And before I take the comments on this story, I would point out that in the story that precedes Shlomo becoming the king, namely when King David instructs his son Shlomo about the enemies out there and how you deal with them and his Yoav and then the Shimi ben Gera. The last person that David, King David mentions is Shimi ben Gera. Shimi ben Gera is a dangerous man. He cursed me with a terrible curse when I left Yerushalayim with the revolt of Avshalom. And King David says, I swore to him I would not harm him. But you're a smart fellow and you'll figure out how to get around that. That's the story that appears and that's the last story that appears before the text says that Shlomo establishes his kingship at the end of the second chapter. You have it in the, you have the first 11 chapters before you in, this, in, the, in, the, in the handout. And so what strikes me that what's interesting is, of course, the question is, what is the attitude of the author of the first two chapters of Mulachim, who is probably the same author as the book of Shmuel, about getting around the oath? My own personal view is the author of the book of Mulachim, chapter one and two, was probably the same author of the book of Shmuel, thinks you can't get around the oath. And what does it mean to say, I swore to him I wouldn't harm him, but I'm telling you to harm him. Isn't telling Shlomo to harm him also a violation of the oath, whether technically speaking, it's a violation or not, but it is David commanding his son to kill Shimi after David swore to Shimi, lo tamut. So there's something highly problematic, leaving the Agada out, there's something highly problematic of the way Shlomo becomes the king by eliminating his enemies, which involve, among other things, the violation of the oath. Violating an oath means violating, taking God's name very lightly. And this is something that we have here in this particular uh, midrash, this agadic section. You have, of course, subduing him by using God's name. And now we have uh, taking it in such a way which strikes, strikes us, I think, is very problematic and involves a violation of the oath and the rooster having violated the oath and recognizing the severity of violating the oath 
even though there was some justification for it to protect your children. But nonetheless, the rooster feels that the oath is such a serious matter that uh, there's, no, there's no excuse. And now all of this, all of these stories, the tormenting the demons, the tricking the demons, the getting them drunk, the kidnapping, <clears throat> the uh, stealing the Shamir, the causing the violation of the oath, etc. And now guess what? Now Shlomo can build the holy temple. So you have to wonder, what is this Agada trying to say? But I'll stop here for a moment and invite comments or questions about this story that we have so far. Where to start? <laughs> Listen, let me say, before you make the comments, I think I just, this is part of the Talmud Bavli. I mean, the Talmud Bavli, by the way, and this is a very important point about these Agadot. It's a point that I made at the end of last week's session about the Bavli. And I raised the question, whether the previous story is about Rav Sheshes in the house of Rav Nachman. These are two of the big people of the Bavli. Rav Nachman's court is filled with people who are trying to harm not just a great scholar, Rav Sheshes, but he's also blind. And they dig a pit for the blind man. Now, this is not just anybody doing this. These are the servants of the court of Rav Nachman. And I said, you have to wonder, I think, when the Bavli is constantly presenting David and Shimi and Amasa and Achitofel as these great scholars, whether they're interested in us seeing these people as great people, or whether they're interested in quite the opposite of seeing our scholars as Achitofel, Shimi, etc., etc. That's what I wonder about because I think it's fair to say that the Bavli on many occasions, is incredibly self-critical about its own people. Many of the Agadot in the Bavli are hardly, uh, you know, complementary to to the uh, to their own scholars. And I'm not talking about the minor scholars. I'm talking about Rabbi Yochanan. There are plenty of stories in the Bavli that are very critical. And I think perhaps the Bavli is interested in presenting a very nuanced picture of our great scholars. In many ways, they're great heroes, but few of them escape uh, critique. So here we have an example, I think, of with Shlomo, I think we have, of course, within the text itself, there are all kinds of problems about the way Shlomo builds the Beit HaMikdash. He coerces people to build the Beit HaMikdash. It's called Sevel. It's called Rodim Ba'am. Uh, he has the horses, etc. In other words, it's all language in the book of Mulachim about Shlomo, which is the language the Torah uses about Paro. So it's not just he connects to Paro, but he acts like Paro. So there's a tremendous critique in the text itself in Mulachim, but the Bavli is taking it maybe in a, in a parallel kind of way, and I find that very interesting. So where do we begin is a good question. So who wants to say who was talking now? That's what I have to say. Um, so who, who else? Somebody was about to say something and I interrupted. Ruth, Ruth Shane, was it? You muted Ruth. I still, I still don't know where to start. You have to know, like you have to be able to put all of the real life stories of Rav Nachman's servants. And are those real life stories? And then parallel them with the, the misadventures of Ashmadai. And 
you know, and why bring them, you know, I don't understand, I don't understand why bringing them in, although is this something that entertains them? Or do they think that this is something, I mean, for us, it's just cuckoo. <laughs> well, I think there is a point to it. In other words, look, you, the, the first point you, you ask about, is this, is this actually true in terms of what actually take, took place or not? And, you know, my answer is, my own answer is I have, I have no idea to what degree these stories are based on some kind of reality, to what extent they are based on, you know, kind of embellishments of reality, et cetera, to what extent they're made up. We do know that the court of Rav Nachman, the appears elsewhere in Shas, that they talk about, that we talk about condemning the court. In other words, the whole discussion in the context of, in Masechah Shabbat, in the context of actually of whoever says David sinned and that whole sugya there, including Shomo, is about, is about rebuking and about rebuking specifically the, the, the palace, the court of Rav Nachman, the Reish Galuta. So it's not just here that there is a critique of Rav Nachman or not him per se, indirectly Rav Nachman, but critiquing the members of, of, his, of his court, of his palace, we have that elsewhere. But you know, the, the larger point, obviously I think that this Agada is trying to give us some kind of an insight into, uh, into a Shlomo. And I think that it is clearly, I think the way the story is told uh, about you know, means and ends, about what it takes to, we have to remember that it's very unclear altogether that you need the Shamir. I mean, the Shamir is this magical thing, which appears no place in the, in the Bible, but it's not even clear you need the Shamir, you, that you can't use metal in the Beit HaMikdash. It says you can't use it for the altar. It says nothing about the other vessels whatsoever. So the whole thing is, what's funny is he's sort of so, he's so stringent about this rule, you know? Because after all, what is, why is he so strict about not using metal in the temple? As the Torah says, it's the place of peace. The man's name is peace, right? The man's name is peace. And the temple's all about peace. But how does he get this thing? How does he, how does he get this implement to, Secure the peace. This is the question, you know. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, we would never write this. I mean, it's beyond, you know. So it's yeah. So I think that where we begin, the specifics are very interesting. The broader point, I think, is clear. It's a parallel to what we have in terms of the 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 the, the Tanakh itself. Like the the authors of this Agada would say we are fully in keeping with. Um, we are fully in keeping um, with uh, with um, with the with the, with the tenor of, of the of the text. By the way, someone posted something now in the chat, which was an interesting point, which is that in the story of Rav Nachman, the last one, Rav Sheshis, the blind Rav Sheshis, the great scholar, is leaving the house of Rav Nachman. The people of the court dig a pit for him in which he's going to fall in, and that is very interesting because it further connects the Rav Nachman story. To the story of Ashmodai, where Benayo Ben Yodad is going to kidnap this guy by digging two pits, basically. He digs a pit below and a pit above. So there is a very good, who made that comment, it's a very good comment, which further links the two stories. Okay, does anybody else want to have something to add over here? Shoshana, if you'd like to unmute and ask your interesting question. Yeah, uh, yes, I put my question there chat, but I'm not sure if you saw it. I'm just curious if you could speak more about the 
yeshiva that, that Ashmanai is, is visiting and, and who is he learning with in the Matif to Ta'ara, who's, who's learning in these places at this time? Right, so we have the, right. Envisioning themselves as already existing at this time? Right, so the yeshiva shall mala and the yeshiva, the, the yeshiva, the, the yeshiva shall mala um, and yeshiva shall mata. You have that expression we say before, before Kol Nidre, yeshiva shamala, yeshiva shamata. We have this elsewhere in the in the, in the in the Bavli, in the most interesting situation, in the situation where the Talmud dis, uh, had, uh, discusses a dispute between, uh, I think it's two Amoraim, Gemarim Bava Metzia, and there it talks about that it's a dispute about about uh, ritual purity, ritual purity. And the Gemara talks about what is decided in the, in the, in the earthly Beit Midrash of humans and what has been decided in the heavenly court, in the heavenly Beit Midrash. And the point of the Gemara is that God says at the end of it, because the heavenly Beit Midrash comes to an opposite conclusion of the earthly Beit Midrash. And God says in that story, my children have, have, have defeated me. In other words, that's an interesting, in other words, there's a truth and there's a truth. There's a truth, there's our truth, which is part of the, which is conditioned by the human condition. So what's true for us on earth is not necessarily the pure truth of heaven, but for us, the truth is what we, what we arrive at over here, a theme that appears throughout the Bible. So in heaven, maybe studying the same Masechta, come out with a different, you know, but the idea that, you know, the idea that even in heaven, the, the people are engaged in study, that there's a heavenly, a heavenly, you know, Beit Midrash, and there's the earthly Beit Midrash. The earthly Beit Midrash is, is our, is, is opposite of heaven. It's like the, like the Jerusalem. It's like when Jacob goes to sleep, there's a heavenly temple, and there's the earthly temple. We, we don't, we, the earthly, the heavenly temple is for those who are deceased, maybe for the, who knows who's going there, the, the angels, I don't know, God. But our temple, our, 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 our temple is our temple and our Beit Midrash is our Beit Midrash. So this is a theme that appears throughout the Bavli and the focus in the Bavli tends to be that our truth is the truth that we can arrive at using our best, our, our best abilities but it isn't necessarily conformed to the absolute truth. So Ashmodai lives, lives in both worlds. Ashmodai is a demon, so he's more than just human. So he's a member of the heavenly court, but being a demon, he somehow both belongs in the upper spheres of heaven. He bridges those two places. So he learns in the heavenly court half the day and half the time he learns one might say to use the language of the Talmud in a different context, So this is what he does. But um, it's, you know, so this is it. So we have Ashmodai here. He's given the information to uh, Shlomo. They've managed to get the Shamir. He can now build his, uh, Shlomo can build the temple. And now we come to the end of our little Agadah. So let's get back to the Agadah. For someone else. Some, yes. A quick question uh, or a thought. It has to do with, uh, I was trying to think why why the master of the sea and why a rooster? The only thing I can think about with the rooster is I think roosters might eat uh, worms uh, so that uh, he, he has to avoid this temptation and it's really stopping him. But I thought there might be other ideas. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. The Gemara seems to focus on 
which is another point that this rooster is wild rooster, Duchifat, the cutter of mountains. He is, the rooster is involved in, the rooster is involved in uh, making the world habitable for people. So this sounds like a very uh, noble pursuit that the rooster has. He takes, he goes to places that people cannot live and he, he makes it habitable. He brings seeds, he brings it in there, etc., etc. He's making the world a habitable place. If you use the language of the Talmud elsewhere, God did not create the world to be desolate. God created the world to be, for human beings to, uh, to, uh, to uh, live in, to make the world habitable for humanity. And that's what this rooster does with the Shamir. That's the purpose of the Shamir. And perhaps the, uh, the Agada wants us to ask the question, even you, if you can get the Shamir, wouldn't we be better off, you know, it's not clear that he returns it to the rooster or whatever. You know, which is the more noble pursuit? To build the temple with the Shamir or to make the world habitable for human beings? I'm not gonna answer that question, but I think it's a question that one can ask. In, 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 in keeping with the general tenor of this, of this Agada. I don't have that much to say about the Agada. I thought it's something, sometimes you just have to present something because I made the points I want to make, but I do want to finish it because there's more to be said. But if I could say, make, make one analogy here. Yes, please. That the, what this reminded me of, that is the, taking off from your point that the Shamir was actually not necessary, that this is presenting Shlomo as the Chassid Shota, who brings destruction to the world, that through his extremist views and his pushing things beyond what's necessary, he leads to the destruction of the kingdom. And what you have here in the Agadah is the whole series of steps that he took, which were you know, outside the law in order to, for, to get his kingdom started. And so he's someone who's, because of this aspect of the way he works, of his extremist behavior and views, it ultimately leads to the destruction of the dynasty. I think that's a very important point because it's certainly true, even, even leaving the Agadah out of it. Yes. No. What, what destroys Shlomo's kingdom from a human standpoint is that after he dies, the people go to his son and they say, your father was a tyrant. Your father enslaved us. He put harsh labor upon us. He conscripted us against our will. Go easy on us. And the son, Rechavam's, consults for a few days with his uh, younger consultants. The older guys say, the people have a point, give in to them now, they'll, be, they'll befriend you later. And the young ones say, show them how tough you are. And that actually is what causes the kingdom to split. So it may be that what caused the kingdom to split is the son's lack of chachma. Because we'll get to this next week about the chachma, which keeps people together. And that is very much what Shlomo is about. But on the other hand, the very way in which he builds the temple is the very thing that causes the kingdom to be totally lost. So your point, I think, is right on in terms of the Agada is making a parallel point. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very good point that the very way he goes about it sows a kind of destruction uh, within the Agadic story. And of course, that's exactly parallel to what we have in the book of, at least the version in the book of Malachim. Yom is different, but in Malachim, there's a parallel account. 
May I make a comment? Uh, this part of the story about the uh, rooster being separated by the glass from its children. I just looked that up. Roosters never, ever, ever sit on eggs. We'll never know who their children are. So that's a strange to pick that animal. Okay, maybe it is. I don't. I can't speak about roosters, but I. It doesn't actually. I think make that much of a difference. The point is that the agada <clears throat> is not. I think so concerned about roosters. I mean, the Abagada is concerned that this rooster, whatever, two things, is using the Shamir to benefit humanity. And number two, very importantly, that, what's, that what Shlomo has done is caused the oath to be violated, which is a central theme, both in the book of Shmuel and the beginning of, of, of Sefer Malachit. And that is a, you know, a, a, a tremendous critique of David and Shlomo and that the Agada picks picks that up. Let me let me just continue. Perhaps now. perhaps we can uh, view the um, Agada, the Ashmadai, as the Sahara of Shlomo. Uh, it seems to me that he uh, Shlomo got drunk before he at his wedding, and he didn't uh, go the next morning to open the base Hamikdash. And Ashmadai gets drunk from the pit; he couldn't uh, restrain himself. Perhaps this is a, a conflict between Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Ra. The Shamir perhaps represents the Yetzir Tov part aspect of Shlomo, wanting to keep to the promise that, um, that God said to David, you can't build the temple because your hands are full of blood. And so um, Shlomo is trying to keep to that without using metal to uh, build, the, build the Beit HaMikdash. And um, so maybe this goes back to uh, putting all three Agados uh, together. Okay, let me, let me, let me just, say the following. Let me just say one thing in terms of the story of Ashmodai, I think, where he drinks the wine. First, he quote, quotes the verse from Mishle, of course, and then he quotes another verse, and then he drinks the wine. And I think one of the points could be the following. Maybe we'll come to this next week, but Shlomo is the wisest of all. No one's smarter than Shlomo. And not only right. that is he wise, but he's the author of, of two, three books, two of which are all about uh, wisdom literature. Kohelet right. is a meditation on life. Mishrei gives very good advice. And like Ashmodai, he's in the Yeshiva Shalmala and Yeshiva Shalmata. Right. In terms the, of his Chachma. So it's exactly. really maybe has, his internal heavenly wisdom. So he has heavenly wisdom. But the right. problem is, there are a lot of people who can dispense wisdom for the world, but they make a lot of very stupid mistakes on their, in terms of themselves. In other right. words, he's the smartest guy in, in the world, but when it comes to the psukim and the chumash, don't have too many wives, too much money, too many horses, don't go back to Egypt. Right. He manages to violate every single one of them. And I think the point of the Agada may be, and the broader point about these Agadot and the Talmudic view of Shlomo is, from one perspective, He's very insightful. Everything he sees, he gives wonderful counsel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who can dispense counsel about what's right and what's wrong, how one should behave necessarily can, can operate himself because you say the Yetzirah or whatever. People have all kinds of inclinations. People have all kinds of temptations. And it doesn't mean that someone who gives sage advice, and it is sage advice, can necessarily follow his own advice. And I think that's part of the point over here. And part of the citations of Mishle, which is highly ironic, because the, the, this little Agada has a, starts with Kohelet, then you get to Mishle, and you're gonna end up with uh, Shira Shirim, which we'll get to in a minute. 
if we not this week, next week, uh, I think that is maybe one of the bigger points of, the, of this Agatha. Yes, he's wise. But, but is, it, mean that is he himself it's, it's, it's sage's advice, sage advice, but it's do as I say, not as I do. He's learning from his mistakes, but it's quite late, you know. Could, could sure he learns, say, yeah. But not for the public, it's not late, you right. know. Could, could one say that uh, this is the tension that you mentioned uh, either last week or the week before between David and Shlomo, uh, David Aviv. It's the essence of Chachma versus Lev Im Hashem. That all of these stories, as has been said, show how smart and outsmarting and how wonderful all the Chachma. But in the end, it's the even with all his mistakes, David's Lev Imelokav is outweighs to a certain extent all the chachma in the world and all the wisdom literature. Right. So I think that's a very that's a very interesting point about yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. And let me leave that for now because maybe next week, which is our last session, I did want to. I want to end on a positive note here, by the way. Next week, we have the other side of Shlomo, which is, which is terrific. And, uh, but yeah. I think we have to keep that in, in, we'll keep that in abeyance about the take on Shlomo. The take, like the take in the Tanakh will be complex. So yeah. we'll, 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 get, we'll pick up on your point next time. Let me just see, can we just take five more minutes and get back to the, to the, to the Agada. Do we have time for one more question for someone who's been waiting patiently? Go ahead. Been really... yes. Okay, go ahead. Um, yes? This, this, was, this was about uh, this was about uh, Asmadai uh, being such an I can't hear you. It's not connecting. You want to put it in the chat, maybe? We can hear. Noah? Um, I will ask the question, uh, if I can scroll back up and find it. Uh, so um, why is Ashmanai called the king of demons? Um, and uh, Okay, why Ashmodai is called the king of the demons, I have to, we'd have to wait till next week. Because I think there's a, there's a deeper point over here about Ashmodai. There's a deeper point which appears at the end of this Agadah. So the plan is, let's say the plan is to finish the Agadah in the beginning of next week. And I'll deal with this question of the king of the demons. There's the, there's the, there's the king of Israel. There's Shlomo, there's, there, there are two kings in the story. There's King Ashmodai, and there's King Shlomo. And I think that the Agada raises a quite interesting point about these two kings that we'll get to next week. Let me just start, let me just take two minutes now, we'll have to stop. Next week we will start with this, and I wanted to reflect upon Shlomo as the builder of the temple. Because I think that's, a, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, no matter how it got built, he does build the temple. He doesn't only build the temple, he actually reimagines the temple in a way that is very important, critically important and very relevant uh, throughout Jewish history and today. 
Shlomo's understanding of the temple. Uh, so let me just get, to, let me just a little bit more. Um, fine. Let's get, scroll down more. Down more, 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 more. More, let's see. Um, no, keep going down, much more down. Stop, one second, one second now. No, one second. No. No, up, up more. No, you, you passed it, one second. So Ashmo, fine. Shlomo says to Ashmo Dai, he says, it is written. It is written in, in the prophecies of Bilam. For him, like the lofty horns of the wild ox, the sages say, like the lofty horn, horns, the ministering angels, the wild ox, those are the demons. In what way are you greater than us? Why are your powers, in what way are you, Ashmodai, greater than the human being, Shlomo says. Why are you greater than me? That's what Shlomo saying. He, he keeps Ashmodai with him until the Beit HaMikdash is now built. Ashmodai says, take off my chains with God's name. Give me your ring with God's name engraved on it. And I will show you why I'm special. So Shlomo does that. Shlomo listens to Ashmodai. He takes off the chain. He gives him the ring. And Ashmodai swallows the ring. And he grows till he places one wing in heaven and one wing on earth. And he threw Shlomo 400 parts of, of many, many miles. And with that moment, Shlomo says, My At that point, Shlomo quotes a verse from Kohelet. What profit is there for the human who toils under the sun? So we have to stop at this point. And this is a very, I remember as a child learning the story about Ashmodai, so Shlomo is gone. Shlomo is gone. And now Ashmodai <coughs> takes Shlomo's place. This is a story that appears in other cultures. What, Prince and the Pauper, is it? Ashmodai takes Shlomo's place. Shlomo is gone, 400 parsa. And now the remainder of the Agadai is what happens after Shlomo has been banished by the demon and the demon now effectively is the king of Israel. So what we'll do next week is we'll finish this Agadah and we'll reflect upon what this means to say that the king of Israel is actually the demon. What is that about? And then we will, in the last part, we will take a, we'll reflect upon Shlomo's building the Beit HaMikdash and Shlomo's understanding of what the significance of the Beit HaMikdash is, which is, I think very powerful. So we'll end on a very powerful, up, upbeat note. If there's one or two comments now, I'll take them now. Yes, there was a couple of questions, I think in the chat, which I can. Yeah, um, so there was one quick little uh, question. Is it a rooster? Because uh, Gewehr is both a rooster and a man. Um, so getting back to the parallel. The translation we have is a wild rooster. I've seen the, the, the translation of a hoopoe, H-O-O-P-O-E, whatever that is, I don't know. That's a different bird. A duchifat, the word, the, 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 we could, you could check it out. The, the duchifat is the term that's in the, the Chumash has. But, you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll check it out myself. I don't think that in terms of the Agadah, it's that significant, but 
we always want to be precise. Here they translate rooster. I went with this translation. The the duchifat, by the way, is the national bird of Israel. It's not a rooster. So what what is it in modern in in, in, in modern? Um, I don't. I'm not sure the translation in English, but um, I'll look it up. Right. What I've seen is hupu, H O O P O E. It's a and different. I don't know if that's accurate. Is that correct? Okay. Is there any other comment for now? Otherwise, we'll have to wait till next next week. Uh, we had another attempt at uh, the same question as before um, uh, about Ashmadai. Uh, essentially, what is it? What does it mean that he's a demon uh, if he has the same master as Solomon or Judah? Um, Right. What is it? What does a shade mean over here? That's a very good question. And you know, the the idea of Shlomo and his demons is something which is found in other cultures as well. It's not limited to uh, the uh, Gemara Talmud Bavli. It appears in other places uh, uh, among the you know in in, uh, in the uh, Islamic texts. It appears quite prominently, and Shlomo is seen very differently there. Um, much less critically, I would say, than the Babli. The Babli has a very strong critique of Shlomo. According to one view in the Babli, by the way, it appears also in the Midrash, uh, the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, there are, there are three kings and four non-kings who have no portion in the world to come. And the Babli raises the possibility there should be a fourth king, namely Shlomo. That's, that is a powerful critique. Babli suggests seriously that maybe Shlomo and the Babi rejects it. But as we say, the Havamin is also interesting. So the, the Babi contains, I mean, I think the story here is, is, is a very critical of Shlomo, but we will pick up with this next week. We'll finish this. I mean, you never finish, but we'll discuss a little bit more. And then I did want to get to the temple building. I'll stop here. Noah, do you want to make some announcements about what's upcoming? <clears throat> oh, um, well, first... Of course, thank you, Rabbi Silver, for an excellent, engaging class. And to everyone who helps to make Drisha such a lively uh, learning community, we really per, you know, appreciate your participation on Zoom, on Facebook, and also hi to everyone watching on Drisha Live. Uh, Drisha has a lot on the schedule, ongoing classes coming up, as well as the annual Rappaport lecture. Um, Check everything out, drisha.org slash classes, sign up. We'd love to have you participating in, uh, well, everything, um, but anything that you can be there for. And we definitely look forward to seeing you again next week for the final session, if not beforehand. Siva, what do you plan for after Pesach? Yes, there will be many classes after Pesach. Uh, we will, uh, we'll, we'll ask what, the whole schedule for after Pesach, this, but this, this stuff before Pesach too, some very interesting stuff before Pesach. This, the classes continue. We have a special thing this Sunday, the Rapport Lecture. And then we have uh, two, two, two programs before Pesach, one on Sunday, I think it's Sunday afternoon, I believe, or Sunday evening, I have to check. And then we have another one, which is a conversation between four people, I'm one of the four, is Rabbi Ingber from Romamu and uh, Dr. Tammy Jacobowitz and Dr. Miriam Udell. The four of us will be discussing the, uh, the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. 
sort of the, the Haggadah, sort of what would have happened if there were no Midrash? How would, how would, we, how would we tell the story? So there'll be four, four viewpoints or four, you know, there'll be a discussion, hopefully comments, et cetera, as well. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on before and there's a full program after Pesach as well. So stay tuned. Very good, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Good, good evening. All the everybody. best. Okay, bye-bye.